Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, we begin the last micro-series in our year-long study of the book of Matthew. We're calling this one Beginnings and Endings. And we'll be looking at the last part of Jesus' life and connecting it back to the long story that began all the way in Genesis. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. With that, uh, let's pick up the story in Matthew 26. We're going to begin in verse 17. Matthew 26, verse 17. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. And while they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to, one, say to him one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And we'll pause our story there until next week. But um, this is one of the more familiar stories in our Bible, right? If you grew up in and around church, uh, this is a story you've almost certainly heard. Uh, This is uh, often we refer to this moment as communion, or the Eucharist, based on your tradition growing up, or um, the Last Supper uh, is often referred to. Um, this moment as Jesus' Last Supper, communion, the Eucharist. Um, but it, it's familiarity, and you've heard us say this a lot here. Um, sometimes things can become so familiar that we can actually miss out on some of the details of a story. And this one in particular, I think it's important that we understand and look at the details. There are some odd details in this story that when you actually slow down and pay attention to the details, this story becomes even more compelling. Uh, for instance, odd detail, Jesus says that the bread is his body and that the 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 wine, there'll be four glasses of wine. Um, Jesus says that the wine is his, the, the, my blood of the covenant is his language. Um, odd details. People have fought wars over that. Like, how do we understand those details? People have, um, I mean, there's been a rift in the church, kind of going back to the 1500s uh, between Protestants and Catholics over how do we understand those words. It is an odd story. What do we do with this story? Uh, the the early Romans looked at this moment and they heard these rumors about these Christians who would gather around dinner tables and they would uh, recite this story and talk about this story. And they actually, they ran a smear campaign against Christians, calling Christians cannibals, thinking we were actually eating bodies. Um, uh, it's an odd story. And uh, it does force us to ask some new questions. I want to 
This morning, I want to ask some new questions about the story. What really went down at that meal that we call communion? And to get there, I want to look at five details in the story that are easy to read over. We'll go through four of those five details really quickly uh, and kind of slow down on one of the five. Is that an airplane? That's an airplane. Um, what I want to do is I want to put some pieces together uh, uh, with you. I want to put some pieces together beginning this week, and we'll kind of be putting some pieces together that, uh, again, Lord willing, on the 18th of December, so uh, the week before Christmas, that Sunday, we're going to try to pull a lot of these pieces together. My hope is that we're going to go slowly through some of this. I want to show you a couple things, but, uh, but my hope is on the 18th, uh, this story comes to life in a whole new way, but we got to do the work before we, uh, we get there. So five details this morning. Uh, and then we will uh, try to pull the pieces together in a couple of weeks. Here's the first of the five details I want us to slow down and just pay attention to. Detail number one. Matthew wants us to see that this meal takes place on a day known as the Passover. In verse 17, we read, On the first day of the Festival of Unleavened Bread, Passover was a, a multi-day celebration, all culminating with a meal. Um, they ask, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Then they go and they make this, this meal. Now, uh, again, in a, over the next couple of weeks, we'll get more into the details on what is the Passover and what, uh, what was involved in the Passover, what, what's going on behind the scenes here. But for the sake of our conversation this morning, uh, just when you think of Passover, think of Passover as, they refer to it as a festival. Um, the language we might use in our culture is a holiday. Uh, fa- uh, Passover is a holiday. And it's not just a holiday in the Jewish calendar. At the time of Jesus, this was the main holiday. This is like the main holiday. Uh, how many of you, um, the, your favorite holiday is Christmas? It's probably the majority. Is this Sacker? It's not the majority. How many was Thanksgiving? Oh, are you kidding me? I would not have expected that. So Thanksgiving has as many hands as Christmas. Um, how many of you, it's Ohio State, Michigan? Is that, is that? <laughs> oh, this year at least. Um, now, uh, just like, so let's just go with Christmas. Uh, we're in the Christmas season. Uh, everybody got their tree up already? Yeah, lots of you have your tree up. Uh, who's got a real tree? Like a real American. <laughs> now, we have all these traditions wrapped around Christmas, right? Where there's all these traditions. Every family's got their own kind of unique twist on the traditions. But we have uh, all of these traditions wrapped around uh, Christmas. As a culture, we have traditions. We give gifts. We sing carols. Some of us sing carols. Uh, we put up a Christmas tree, whether that's a fake plastic tree or a real tree. Uh, we put up a Christmas tree. My Christmas tree this year, we got, it, we got it on Friday, and we got a blue spruce. I've not had a blue spruce before. I'm allergic to it, and it's like going to war with me. It's like it started puncturing me, but I'm a real American. Um, <laughs> we go... We go to ugly Christmas sweater parties as a culture. We put elves on shelves. There's all these things we do. Uh, maybe, maybe you watch a movie every year as, as like a way of celebrating and ringing in Christmas. One of my favorite movies um, for Christmas that has become kind of a tradition is It's a Wonderful Life. I love this movie. It's a little bit long, but I, I love the movie. Uh, maybe for you, it's, it's uh, a Christmas story. What would you say? Die Hard? Yeah. I'm not surprised. Who did you root for yesterday, Bob? <laughs> I'm kidding. All right. Uh, uh, National Lampoons. We did a poll here a few years ago, and National Lampoons Christmas Vacation 
was the number one favorite Christmas movie of South Harbor Church. I don't know if that still stands or not, but uh, you probably have a Christmas movie of some sort that you watch. Some of you really love the kind of sappy um, Hallmark special Christmas movies that follow the same plot line, but you still watch them every year. Um, we have all these traditions. However, when it comes to our, uh, our holiday of Christmas, what we all recognize at least what we should recognize, is that there is a central story that holds all the traditions together. Without the central story, the traditions are just traditions. They're, they're kind of meaningless. But if the center story is there, what we understand is that the traditions actually help emphasize the, the central story of Christmas. The central story of Christmas being that uh, our God loves us so much that he became flesh and blood uh, in the life of Christ for us. Uh, that's the central story of, of Christmas. Now, uh, when it comes to the Passover, think similar. It was a holiday, but the holiday had all of these traditions wrapped around the holiday. There's, um, again, we'll get into the traditions a little bit because it actually plays into our story over the next couple of weeks. But there's all these traditions involved with Passover. However, what they understood was that there was a central story, that all the traditions, without the central story, the traditions were just kind of meaningless traditions. But with the central story, the traditions took on all kinds of meaning. The central story of Passover was this reminder that 1,500 years earlier, before Jesus, God set his people free from slavery in Egypt. Uh, They also understood that tied to this moment, um, why do you call it Passover? Tied to this moment, there was this, this other moment in which God said, take a lamb, kill the lamb, uh, put its blood on your doorpost. There's all kinds of, like, why did they do this? Um, um, many believe that the lamb was the sacred animal for Egypt. In fact, if you go to Egypt, you'll see lambs everywhere as a symbol of the Pharaoh. And so at some level, God is saying, take Pharaoh's sacred animal. I got to know that you're actually wanting to join my story, which means you actually have to, to like, I'm, I'm wondering if you're willing to leave the Egyptian story of um, power and dominance. Are you really willing to join my story? And so take the sacred animal and, uh, and as a symbol that you trust me and that you're willing to go with me into the desert, um, take that animal, that lamb, and put its blood on your doorpost. And, uh, and then that moment triggered a series of other moments that eventually lead to God rescuing and setting his people free from slavery in Egypt. Somehow tied to all that was the sacrifice of a lamb and uh, the, all those details are recorded in the, the, the book of Exodus. Now, um, again, there's all these other traditions. Again, many of them are rooted in the scriptures, but there's other traditions about how do you, you got to find a lamb. The lamb has to be perfect. Uh, There's a certain way to kill the lamb. There's a certain way to eat the lamb. Uh, There is a certain way to deal with the leftovers of the lamb. There are a certain number of glasses of wine. You got to drink four glasses of wine. Why four? Well, there's uh, four promises in the book of Exodus. We'll look there next week, but um, we're going to drink four glasses of wine. All of that is part of the liturgy. But the center of the story is this reminder that God has set us free from slavery. So every year we do this as a way to remember that God set us free. Okay, so that's Passover. Uh, that is the first detail. Here's the second detail. Verse 18. Jesus replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. Now, again, this is an odd detail. Can we just acknowledge that? This is a weird go to. I imagine the conversation I'm, like with Jesus and his disciples. He's got you know, his 12 disciples with him. And he says to his disciples, find a man. And the disciples, I just can imagine them saying, okay, which man? 
Well, you just find a certain man. Oh, that clears it up. Okay, find a certain man. I'll look for the certain man. Um, and what should we tell him when we, when we like, find the certain man? Tell him the teacher says, okay, time out. Uh, like, should we tell him like, your name? Like, which, no, no, no. Don't, just, just tell him the teacher says that the appointed time is near. Okay, the, should we tell them what the appointed time is? No, no, just say the teacher says the appointed time is near. Do you want us to tell them when this is? No, just tell them it's near and that 13 guys are coming over to your house. So we're just supposed to invite ourselves over. Yeah, yeah, tell them that um, the, you know, like the teacher says, uh, find a certain man, tell that certain man the teacher says the appointed time. Don't tell them when, tell them it's near and that we're coming over to your house. He'll get it. You read a story and you think, that, what, what an odd story. What, what is this doing in here? Uh, Matthew records that story. The other gospels record the story. There's four gospels. Luke records the story. He adds even more kind of cryptic details. This is how Luke records the story. He replied, Jesus replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters. Say to the owner of that house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He'll show you a large room upstairs. It's all furnished. Make preparations there. <laughs> Follow a man carrying a jar of water to his house. Then get the room upstairs. Like this is, this is like James Bond meets Ocean's Eleven kind of like cryptic detail. What, what do we do with this one? Now, without getting too far in the weeds, actually, uh, I, had a, I, I cut a lot of what I was planning on sharing because it gets way too in the weeds, and it's probably not interesting. But for me, it's interesting, at least. Uh, the, the, without getting too deep in the weeds, um, I don't think Jesus is being cryptic here. I think his disciples, when you read that they go on and do it, I think they understand exactly what he's saying. Here's why. Uh, Luke's detail especially is a major clue. When Luke tells us that Jesus says, find a man carrying a jar of water, it's a major clue. Why is it a major clue? Well, in the first century uh, in Israel, and this is actually true prior to this as well, the job of getting water was always, culturally, it was always women's job to get the water. Men had other jobs. Women's job was to get the water. They would go to wells. You may notice uh, in your Bible all these stories that take place at wells. Almost all of them uh, take place at the center. There's women getting the water. Samaritan woman getting the water, Rachel getting the water, the women getting the water. So why is a man going to get water from the well? That's the question we should be asking as we read this. That's the weird detail. The only reason for a man to get the water is if they were part of a community in which there were no women in their community. If there's no women in your community, you now have to go to the water, you have to go to the well, and you have to get the water. Now, we have talked about a community of, of men before, not that long ago, uh, we've talked about this, that there was a community of men. There were no women in this community. Uh, this community, let's see if you can remember. It'll make me really happy if we can remember. Um, have you, when do you remember talking about a community of men? Um, they were priests, but they left the priesthood because the priesthood, especially the priesthood of those chief priests, those Sadducees, uh, those, they, they had gotten corrupt. And so they move off into the deserts. Do you remember the Essenes, yeah, thank you. Even if you don't remember, just nod. It makes me feel good. Uh, I'm on a high from the Michigan game, so you're not going to take me off that high. Uh, 
Yeah, the Essenes. Uh, the, uh, the Essenes or the Essenes. Um, we spent an entire week looking at this group. Uh, I think John the Baptist is somehow connected to the Essenes. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls community is somehow connected to the Essenes. Now, what's interesting about this particular group is to the south side of the city of Jerusalem, the Essenes had their own gateway into Jerusalem. So when Jesus says, go find a man carrying water, they would know where to look. What makes it even more interesting is that the Essenes... I won't get too far in the weeds. Um, I won't get too far in the weeds. I won't get too far in the weeds. The Essenes, they celebrated a different calendar than the rest of the Jewish people for, for a variety of reasons. But essentially, their calendar for Passover was different than the rest of Israel's calendar. In a time when everyone is in Israel to celebrate a festival, you're not going to find a guest room in most homes. But you would in an Essene home because they're not celebrating the Passover with everyone else. Now, take that or leave that. What's interesting to me about this story is that this man's not named. He's just a certain man. If you're taking notes, just circle that, a certain man. He's not named. He's not, uh, history doesn't remember his name. He's not recognized by us. We're not, able to, we're not able to point at the specific guy. However, if this guy doesn't do his job, all of the details that Jesus is going to unpack on Passover would be lost to history. Uh, we wouldn't have it. We wouldn't have, this, Jesus, God would do it in some other way, I assume, but all of the things Jesus is going to reveal to his disciples in the hours before he's going to be crucified would not happen if this man didn't do his job. The simple, like, go find a room, prepare the room. Okay, that's, the, that's the second detail. Third detail, uh, verse 20. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. Let's not fly over this one. When evening came. I remember being really confused in seminary. Um, the, the, the detail of, okay, uh, Jesus eats the Passover meal on Thursday night. But then we say that Jesus died on Passover day, but, Passover, but, but Jesus died on Friday. And I just remember, th- I, like, I was, like, I, like, legitimately, like, okay, which one was it? Did he eat the Passover meal on Thursday night, or did Jesus die on Passover? Is Passover on Thursday, or is Passover on Friday? I... Uh, you will find people point out this contradiction. If you're looking for people who point out contradictions, there are people that will point out this apparent contradiction as a way of talking about how dumb Christians are and how far we've missed the point. However, what you realize in our story is that the disciples don't see this as a contradiction. All of them record this detail. It's not a contradiction for the disciples. For them, there's something obvious going on here that, that everyone who's reading this text would obviously understand However, because we live 2,000 years later in a totally different culture, this obvious detail is lost to us. And so now we read this thing and we think, okay, it's a contradiction. It's not a contradiction. What the Jewish people understood, we've talked about this before, but what they understood was that God, the day doesn't begin, so we'll, we'll say our calendar begins on, like, we'll count the, day, the beginning of a day at midnight. However, for most of us, we think of day beginning when the sun rises. That's how culturally we think of the day beginning. And it kind of goes from sunrise to sunset. That's how we think of a day. To the Jewish people, that's not how time works. Why? Because God said uh, in Genesis chapter 1, there was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening and there was morning the second day. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And on and on. There was evening and then there was morning. So to the Jewish people, the day begins at sundown. And it lasts until sundown the next day. In other words, sundown on Thursday is Passover, just like 
Friday is Passover, which is why, by the way, if you read the story closely, they got to get Jesus' body in the tomb before the sun goes down again. Why? Because once the sun goes down again, it's the next day. And the next day is, we would say Saturday, they would say Sabbath. Can't work on the Sabbath. We can't move a body on the Sabbath. We'd have to wait. Uh, and then you've got birds, you've got elements. So like we've, We want to get his body off the, the cross prior to the, the sun going down. Because that marks the beginning of Sabbath. It's why the women are waiting to go see the, the body of Jesus until the Sabbath is done. Does this make sense how time works? Okay. Third detail. I'm just trying to give you a sense of the story and kind of more accurate picture of the whole scene. But this next one is the one that I find really interesting. Detail number four. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. He was reclining at the table. Again, that's a detail that's so easy to read right over. Um, but this detail is crucial to our story. Um, and it's, the, it's the main thing I hope, uh, I hope we catch this morning. Um, I learned this detail two different times in my life. The first time I learned this detail, I was a, an undergrad at college, and I thought it was meh. The second time I learned this detail, I was blown away by it. So I don't know. There's, like Leaving this morning, there'll be some of you that are thinking, eh. And some of you, my hope is this detail, uh, I think now this detail changes so much of how I understand what's happening at this moment. Um, Jesus is reclining at the table. Uh, for most of us, when we uh, think of the Last Supper, like you picture the Last Supper or communion, uh, we often think of a long table with the disciples around the long table, sitting on chairs maybe. Um, we think of, uh, here's a few images. Uh, Duccio di Bologna says, I don't know how to say his name. Uh, in, uh, in 1308, he painted this. Um, this is kind of how we think of it. It's like a bench. Uh, Jesus is always in the middle I think that's a pig. That's, that's, a weird, that's a weird artistic interpretation. Maybe that's a lamb on the plate. I can't tell. Uh, but that's, the, that's how he portrayed this image. Uh, there's another image, maybe a little more famous than this image. Um, this is Domenico. That's a chocolate, I believe. Uh, and his uh, Last Supper. Uh, again, Jesus is in the middle of the table. He's the one with the, the circle on his head. And uh, there's a long table. They're sitting on like a long church pew, it appears to be. And that's in 1480. And then the most famous of all is Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper from 1498. Um, you're familiar with this painting. You maybe read the, the Dan Brown book that was the Da Vinci Code, and they looked into this painting, and it's kind of a weird book. Um, but again, the images that we tend to think of is a long table, Jesus in the center of the table, and the disciples around the table sitting on chairs. This is how people in the 1500s ate food. This is how we today eat food. So when we picture uh, the scene, we tend to think of how we would eat food. And if you had 13 people at a table, you're going to put them on chairs and the main person is going to be in the middle or maybe at the head of the table um, because that's how we eat. But this is, first off, it's, this is a weird, can you imagine like going to a restaurant and being like, we're going to, we need a table for 26. We're just going to all sit on the same side. So it's like, there's only 13 of you. It's a weird image, um, but like it's, it's also really culturally inaccurate. To the first century Jewish culture, this is not how people eat dinner. This is not how they ate. And if we're going to get a, a proper understanding of the scriptures, how does, like when we, we, my hope is to give you a different mental image of what was happening at the Last Supper, at communion, how the disciples ate it. 
We know from culture, both Roman culture and then the Jewish people at the time of Jesus picked up the Roman cultural practice. There was a way to eat. You would sit at a table known as a triclinium. Let me try to give you the visual. Uh, A triclinium is a, uh, a, again, a Roman-shaped table, later adopted by the Jewish people. The table would have been in the shape of a U, a shape of a U. It was low to the ground, and you would sit on low couches, Um, most often not even a couch. It would be like a cushion. And then the way you would eat is the guests would recline. Um, So we read that Jesus is reclining here. That word's intentional. Uh, In fact, the story we looked at last week, uh, the the story that took place in Bethany, we read again in that story that Jesus is reclining. And you would recline on your left arm. I'll show you. Uh, Something like this. You would recline on your left arm and you would eat with your legs behind you and you would eat with your right hand. That makes sense? Can you, you probably can't see me. Some art. I'll show you some pictures later. Uh, uh, but you would recline on your left hand. Your left hand was your unclean hand. I find that to be wrong because I'm left-handed. But they saw your left hand as your clean hand. This is not to be crude, but it's culturally relevant. This is the hand you wipe with, um, so you don't eat with this hand. This is the hand you eat with. And so you would lean on your left shoulder, and your feet would be behind you. Uh, the story, I think Luke tells the story of when Jesus is, the lady comes in and she washes Jesus' feet with his hair while he was reclining at the table. That's because his feet would be behind him, and so she kind of sneaks into the party. Make sense? You got the picture? Um, but you would rec- sit around a U-shaped table looking something like this uh, called a triclinium. This is a more culturally accurate picture of the kind of table that Jesus was sitting at for the Last Supper. Now, who cares? Who cares? Um, well, one, uh, this particular, understanding this, paints in a picture for us of the Last Supper. But two, we are given some details about how the story plays out, knowing some of the cultural information about this particular table. Now, um, some key details to know about the table. We would say... Uh, that the guest of uh, like the host, if this was in our homes and this is kind of how we did it, we would probably put the host somewhere here, right? That's how all the artwork would picture it. Jesus is going to sit in the middle. That's not where the host would sit. That we know this from history. The host sits here. This is the seat of the host right here. Uh, this is the seat of the host. Next to the host is the guest of honor. So if you're going to celebrate, uh, if I'm hosting a birthday party and it is my daughter's birthday, I'd be here. And then the guest of honor, my daughter, let's say Joanna, she's going to sit here because she's the guest of honor for her birthday party. Okay, so if you're having Thanksgiving at mom and dad's, uh, in that culture, dad would be sitting here and um, maybe the next of kin, the oldest son or something would sit there in their culture. Okay, does that make sense? So you got your, your host, your guest of honor. Now, this seat was reserved for kind of the, um, the trusted friend. So maybe you're an introvert and you only go to parties if a trusted friend comes with you, right? So that, this is the trusted friend. Somebody um, so, would refer to it as a seat of second honor because you're sitting next to the host. So it's a seat of second honor or the trusted friend. Now, after this, Around the table, you would essentially rank your guests, the Romans would. They would rank their guests. And uh, from the next most important to the next most important to the next most important, and on, on down to the very end, where you would get to the last chair, seated on the very end, 
this brown box would be the servant's chair if they got a seat at the table at all. If they got a seat at the table, you would put the servant in this chair. Now, the servant's got a job during this party. The, the reason this, the center is left open is because that's where the servant would go to serve. So they're kind of, their job is, yeah, they maybe get to eat a little bit with you and share with you, but most of the time they're up on their feet and they're running and they're getting you seconds and they're getting you more wine and they're re, uh, if you have entertainment coming in, they're making sure the entertainment's all like set. Uh, this is how Roman dinner parties worked. You would seat the servant next, on the end, next to the door, kind of furthest away from the host and the guests of honor, the guests of honor. So does this make sense? Terribly interesting, I know. Now, here's where it gets, in my mind, fascinating. Uh, we know from our story, oh, by the way, this is, um, let me show you some Roman art before we move on. Uh, here's some Roman art uh, kind of depicting the, the leaning and then next image. So again, Roman art, and then next image. This is actually Jewish art, but you can kind of see the, the leaning on the left arm, kind of seated around the table. Uh, this was the cultural practice. And when we read that Jesus is reclining, we're given a hint that Jesus is following along with, like, why would he do it different? Like, this is his world. This is how his world did it. So Jesus is kind of following the customs of his day. Now, where it gets interesting, in our story, Jesus in our story is the What? The host. Okay, so back to our diagram. Different diagram this time. A little simpler one. Jesus is the host. So Jesus is going to sit here. Now, um, that, that's kind of an obvious. Jesus says, prepare the table. I'll come eat with you. I'm the host of this particular meal. Now, Jesus is the host. Raising the question, who is the, the guest of honor, the servant, and the second guest of honor? Do we know this from our story? Turns out we do. John, in particular, gives us pretty interesting details, wanting us to kind of picture the scene. And so John's trying to lay out the scene. Notice what John, how he records the scene. He says, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. We're dropping into a story here. Um, But then leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Now, when we read that the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John's Nice way of referring to himself, okay? So John's got a little bit of a, like, I'm the one he loves. It was, it was his way of actually trying to be humble to say, not name himself and just say, but anyway, John says, the disciple Jesus loved was reclining next to him and then he can lean back against Jesus and ask him, Lord, who is it? So which seat is John, well, there it is. Which seat is John sitting in? <laughs> this seat, right? John is sitting, if he's able to lean back against Jesus, um, uh, in the, I believe it's the King James, it's against the bosom of Jesus, right? Against the chest of Jesus. He leans back against Jesus. John is sitting in the, the, the special friend, the, guest, the second guest of honor, the trusted friend. John's sitting in that seat. Now, again from our passage, if John is able to motion to Peter and Peter can see him, which seat is Peter most likely, if not most certainly, sitting in? The servancy. This, for me, so interesting. Peter sitting in the servant seat. Now, this is, the reason this is interesting is because what we know about this particular story, or about Jesus' disciples, is that John is the youngest disciple, and Peter is the oldest disciple. 
The custom of the day was as a rabbi, you would have a chief disciple. This chief disciple would always be your oldest disciple, and they were the one who were supposed to speak up first. They were the one who would carry on the yoke or the teachings of their rabbi. Why does Peter speak up first all the time? He sees himself as the chief disciple. He's the oldest. And so Peter sees himself in this role. He understands that it's his job to take on the the teaching of Jesus uh, after Jesus. He's got a responsibility. John, we know, is the youngest disciple. John is by far the youngest disciple. So why would Jesus... By the way, um, Peter's sitting in the servant seat. You ever notice that... uh, Remember the, the story that happens right before this story? Hopefully this places some pieces for you. Uh, right before the story, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And do you remember how Peter responds? Jesus, you're not supposed to wash my feet. I'm supposed to wash your feet. Remember that story? You're not supposed to wash my feet. I, why does Peter say this? Yes, because Jesus is the rabbi, of course. But also because Peter understands he's, but Jesus has sat him in the servant seat. His job is to wash the feet. His job is to get the wine. His job is to get more food. His job is to bring out the different courses of the Passover meal. Jesus put him in the servant seat. He's got a responsibility. Jesus, you're not supposed to wash my feet. I'm in the servant seat. Shocking. Peter, the chief rabbi, Jesus places in the servant seat. Now, that leads to a second interesting, like once you understand this piece, a second interesting observation about the story. Luke records a detail in the story. Luke tells us that as soon as they have their spot at the table, an argument breaks out amongst the disciples. Here's the argument they get into. Verse 24 of Luke 22. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered the greatest. Jesus, who's the greatest? Because Jesus has just shaken up the order. From their culture, they understood how the order worked. The greatest of the disciples is supposed to be seated right uh, to the left of Jesus, the second greatest to the right of Jesus, and on around the circle uh, with a servant being the least of the greatest. John is supposed to be sitting in the servant seat. He's the youngest. Peter is supposed to be sitting in the, the guest of honor seat. He's the oldest. But Jesus flips the order. Culturally, this is shocking to a first century Jew. To which Jesus responds... Uh, by the way, I love how Jesus anticipates this. He, he's always teaching. I love it. He's always got like, it's not just words. He's always trying to teach them something and show them something. Jesus said to them, the kings of the, the Gentiles, everyone is not Jewish, um, so let, think Romans. The Romans, the kings of the Romans, lorded over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. In other words, you've got your preconceived notions about who's the greatest. You know how your culture works. You know where you're supposed to be seated Everyone kind of ranks themselves based on how good they think they are. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Jesus is teaching a lesson. Peter, I know the the whole culture around you would say that the best seat in the house is the the seat of the, of the, the honored guest. But I am telling you that the best seat in the house is the seat of the servant. This is how you are to go out into the world. Now, interesting or not. Okay, uh, here's where I find it takes it up even a notch. Um, John is seated in the seat of the trusted friend. Peter is seated at the servant seat. Who is in the seat of honor? 
Notice what uh, we read earlier. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. Whoever is seated in the seat of honor is somehow able to dip their hand into the bowl with Jesus. Now we have two options for who that could be. It could be the seat right to the right of Jesus, but we already know that John occupies that seat because he leans against the chest of Jesus. Um, the other option is that the, the, the guest of honor can dip their hand into the bowl with Jesus. Who's seated at the, in the seat of honor? Who does Jesus put in the seat of honor? Judas. Why? Now, does Jesus know that Judas is going to betray him? Yes. He's already said it. He says it right in our story. He says, I know that I know it's coming. Um, why does Jesus put Judas in the seat of honor? It almost feels, would you agree, that to the very end, Jesus needed Judas to understand that though, first, he has a place at the table. Many of us, we would say, Judas is going to betray me. I, he's not invited to the dinner table, right? We, we, that's kind of become the new norm, like just... Um, we'll have to, we have to create a boundary. We'll keep Judas out of it because he's not healthy. He's, we'll keep him away from our dinner table. But Jesus seems to understand that, no, Judas belongs at the table. I'm inviting him to the table. And Judas, needs, you need to know that all the way to the very end, I love you. You're my friend. All the way to the very end. You need to know that your life has significance you, you can try to control the situation on your own. You can do that. But Judas, you also need to know that you can trust the story God's been writing. You don't have to betray. You don't have to betray. I think he needs Judas to know something about who Judas is, um, which I think eats at Judas later. We'll get there in a couple weeks. Um, but I also think he probably needs us to know something about who we are. I've been doing the pastor gig now for long enough to know that there are a number of people probably some of you who think about things you've done and that issue is such a black stain, such uh, an embarrassment. You messed up so bad that you have convinced yourself that there's nothing you can do, no way that Jesus would ever invite you to his table. Maybe you can get crumbs from the table. Maybe maybe God's grace will be enough that someday maybe he'll still let you get in heaven. But there's not like, you're not like trusted anymore. I think Jesus arranges the table for this last meal because he needs his disciples, he needs Judas, and he needs us to see something about who he is. Detail number five. Jesus changes the liturgy. He then lifts up bread and he says, this is my body. And he lifts up a cup and he says, this is my blood of the covenant. For 1,500 years, Jewish people have been killing a lamb, drinking wine, killing a lamb and drinking wine to remember a time in history where God set his people free. For, again, the, 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 the lamb is loaded with significance, but for 1,500 years, they've been practicing this ritual. They understood that by practicing this ritual, they weren't just remembering something that happened. They believed that they were participating in God's story. This wasn't a story about their ancestors. This was their story. We don't think like this anymore, right? We talk about our ancestors fought in the Revolutionary War. Our ancestors, uh, I went with my father-in-law yesterday to the movie Devotion about the Korean War. You might say, well, my grandpa fought in the Korean War or my dad fought in the Korean War. But we don't think of it as, I, like, this is part of my story. They said, this is Deuteronomy 6, in the future, when your son asks you, what's the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord your God has commanded you? Tell him, 
We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. We were slaves. Not they were slaves. We were slaves. And God, God led us out of slavery. The invitation is always, will you join God's story? And the whole time, if you read Matthew, the whole thing has been pointed to this moment if they had their eyes open to it. Uh, Jesus, it's a lamb that's going to be killed. Jesus is born in a what? A manger. It's a lamb's trough, big stone thing, lamb's trough. Then uh, the first guests to Jesus are shepherds. And coming after this story, Jesus as an adult, the very first words spoken about Jesus are by his cousin John. And John's exact language is, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the Passover lamb, John says. They understood that there is a story God has been telling, and Jesus is the center of that story. He's the center of the story. In fact, that's exactly how the first Christians saw this moment. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 says that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Peter says, with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The author of Hebrews in chapter 10 takes a whole chapter to talk about how Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. It's like this whole grand story throughout history has been written. And the invitation amongst the people is to join God's story. Jesus at the center of God's story. And the question is, will we be part of it? That's the invitation. Judas, you get to be part of it. You can choose to leave and kind of write your own story. You can choose to do it your own way. You can be the author of your own story. It's not a good story. It's not interesting. But you get the choice. You don't have to be part of God's grand story. If you are part of God's grand story, you've got a role in it, but you're not the star of it. Oh, and by the way, who's involved in the story? Well, we've got a certain man. It's a, it's a dude with a water bottle. He's part of God's story. He's included. We've got John. John, I imagine the whole time he's walking with the disciples, thinks, I'm the worst, I'm the youngest, I'm just the kid. I'm the kid brother to the disciples. John, you need to know how much you're loved. And Peter, you need to know something about what it means to be a leader. To be a leader in God's kingdom, you're not the star of the show. You don't always get to be the first to, like, the first to speak up. You're supposed to be a servant. And Judas, you need to know you have a choice. You can join God's story, or you can choose to do it your own way. Uh, and while this is all playing out, they're arguing about who's the greatest. You messed up the table arrangement, Jesus. Who's the greatest? Who's your favorite? We thought Peter was your favorite, but now it looks like John's your favorite. Who's the greatest, Jesus? You, you're confusing us. Who's the greatest? All that brings me to, uh, we'll end here, uh, of scene from one of the greatest movies of all time, a movie called Rocky. Um, I think Rocky 1 may be the greatest movie of all time. I think Rocky 2 is maybe one of the most fun movies of all time. And uh, how many of you have seen Rocky? How about Rocky 2? Rocky 3? Rocky 4? Drago, I will break you. Uh, how, how, how many of you have seen all of the Rockies plus all of the Creeds plus all of the things? Anything? Yes, okay, my people. I, I, I get like Oprah every time I watch Rocky. It's just like, <laughs> so good. Uh, now, uh, there's a scene in Rocky that... Um, and I, by the way, I know that they're fake hitting each other, okay? But it doesn't matter. It's still like such a, such a great movie. Uh, I, there's a scene in Rocky too that I once, uh, I heard the pastor Francis Chan, heard Francis Chan 
Um, I heard him give an illustration that's, it's stuck with me, and so I'm passing it along to you. Uh, coming from the, a scene from Rocky 2, it's the, like the climax of the movie, uh, or one of the climaxes of the movie from Rocky 2. Let me just show you like a 30-second clip. Now, uh, by the way, that movie, every time, anybody else, when you see a clip like that, you just want to go work out. <laughs> what, what is it about Rocky? Just wanna go, now I got to go lift something. Uh, now, uh, how many of you uh, saw the girl in the green jacket as this movie was played? See the girl in the green? She's like the star of the show. You see the girl in the green jacket? Well, let me show you. This is the girl in the green jacket. Um, she is, uh, she's like the cutest little girl ever, and she's cheering on Rocky. Now, how do you think this girl sees this movie clip? When she, if she were sitting in our, in our church right now, how do you think she watches the movie clip? That's me. I'm the girl in the green jacket. Uh, I'm like the... I'm, even though her part in the movie is so small, it's just like, it's there for, like her job is to run up the steps, cheer on Rocky, and then the, it kind of moves on to the next scene. She, I imagine, even though she gets five seconds of screen time, she watches this clip and she says, there I am, look at me, I'm the, I'm the girl in the green jacket. Uh, imagine you're on an airplane and you get seated next to somebody. It's some, uh, what is it, like 30 years has passed, so she's older now. Um, but you start talking and you say, hey, you know, what is it you do? And she says to you, uh, I'm a movie star. And you say, really? What, what movie were you in? And she says, I was in Rocky II. And you said, really? I don't remember you in Rocky II. And she says, well, I mean, I was like in the, the center of the movie. And like, I don't remember. She's like, no, seriously. I was in like this emotion, like the, the emotional climax of the entire movie. I was in like the main scene. How do you not remember me in the movie? And then, and then you, you kept pressing, and she says, I was a little girl in the green jacket who ran up the stairs. If you heard this woman, and you're sitting next to her on a plane, at that point in the conversation, you think, delusional. All right, this, this movie was so not about you. Like, it was not about you. You had one job. Your job was to run up the stairs, cheer Rocky, 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 and then get off the screen. That was your job. You had one job. And you were so good at your job, we don't even remember you in the movie. We watched the clip, and we don't see you. You kind of blend in. Uh, Rocky stands out because you did your job so well. You're not the star of the movie. We get, uh, in the grand scheme of things, we get a five-second blip of screen time in God's grand story, right? This life, filled with ups and downs, and uh, we get five seconds of screen time in God's grand story. We do get a choice. Will we cheer on the king? Will we cheer him on? Now, to do that, we have to recognize he's the star, not us. But we get to be part, a small blip, but we get to be part of the greatest story that's ever been told. Or we can be like Judas, and we can choose instead to say, I'm going to write my own story. I want to be the star of my own story. It's a garbage story that nobody wants to see. It's not interesting. In fact, it damages uh, the world. We can choose that path, or we can recognize God has given me skills. God has given me gifts. I have a role. I get five seconds of screen time. I can cheer on the king. But in order to do that, Judas, you have to recognize that you're invited in, but you get a choice. And Peter, if you're going to be part of this, you have to recognize you're not the star. I'm leaving soon, and if you don't get this message, the movement's dead. If you don't understand that the role in my grand story is your job is to cheer on the king, cheer on God's kingdom. And John, if you think the whole time that you're just this punk kid that that has no voice, you have no worth in the story, 
You're gonna choose to slide into the background of every scene and you're not going to take your five seconds of screen time and cheer on the king. We have a short life, um, but we, can, we get to be part of the greatest story this world has ever heard. And I imagine right now in our world, um, you've got neighbors, you've got friends. The reason we did this operation, Love Your Neighbor, was there are people in your world that feel as though they are worthless. There are people in your world that are, they're, they're part of another story because they haven't been invited into God's grand, grand story. They don't know it's there. So they bought into the story of, I just need to buy more stuff and then I'll fit in. I just need to look better and then I'll fit in. Um, and so the story is about them, they, but it, it, it's a boring story. They don't wanna be part of it. Our job this Christmas is to invite them in. Do you know who the king is? We'll pick up the story there because, by the way, the story ends, P.S., with uh, Jesus drinking uh, a couple glasses of wine and then going and singing a hymn and then going off to a mountain uh, where the next story will unfold called the the story that takes place in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, But the hymn that Jesus sings actually... We know the hymn. We'll pick it up there next week. Ah, Would you pray with me? Lord. Uh, Jesus, we, um, first off, Lord, we recognize that for all of us, the, the lie of the enemy is always to make ourselves bigger than we are, to make ourselves more important than we are, and Lord, to waste our breaths cheering on things that don't matter. Uh, and Lord, we also recognize that for some of us, the way the enemy lies to us is to, remind, to, to make us think that we're less than we are, that we're less significant than we are, that we're not part of any good story. Uh, Lord, would you remind us that you've invited us into the greatest story that's ever been told? Lord, we get to play a role. Um, but Lord, would you also remind us in this moment that you are the king and that you are good. Lord, would you make our lives significant through your significance? Would you bring purpose to our lives um, through the purpose of your life? Lord, would you help us to find our place in your story, we pray. In Jesus, we pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen. We hope that this week's message has brought you both some challenge and some blessing. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., you can find our service streamed live on our Facebook page. And so from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.